Thank you guys all for coming out. If you've got a Bible, turn to Job chapter 38. Uh, we're on week four of a five-week study through this book of Job in the Bible, and it's a, it's a book that's maybe more human than any other book. It tells uh, just the real side of what a life of faith looks like and how at times it can be very dark and very confusing. Uh, where we are so far in this book is that Job, who was a righteous guy, has been in unrelenting anguish for months. Uh, months ago, he has lost his children. They were all just wiped out in an instant. Ten of his kids were eating at one of his children's houses, and a wind blows through and wipes them out. Uh, Job had been wealthy, but all of his wealth was wiped out in an instant. He lost his health. He was covered with sores. Uh, it's been this cataclysmic fall from glory. And to Job, it just doesn't make sense. You know, we see people in culture who fall from glory, and sometimes that makes some sense to us. You know, we see an O.J. Simpson, and we know that he was wealthy, he was popular, and then allegedly um, he sinned and then fell from glory. And, and we see him and we say, well, he's kind of getting what he deserved. He's, he's reaping what he sowed now. Or we see a Tiger Woods, and we say, man, here's this guy. He had it all. He had wealth. He had status. Everybody loved him. He had a family. And then his sins became public, and he had his fall from glory. And we look at that, and we say, well, that makes sense, too. Um, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so he's kind of reaping now what he's, he had been sowing. So with Job, he's looking at his life. He's lost everything, and he's saying, what have I done? And he, he can't think of anything. He wants to keep his integrity. He doesn't want to lie and say that he did something that he didn't do. And he says, there's just not this one-to-one -one correspondence between my life and the way that I've lived and what's happening to me now. Now, his friends come in and they say, Job, there must be something. Uh, these kind of things don't happen to good guys. So there must be some hidden sin. There must be some murder that you covered up. There must be some affair that you've covered up. So just come out with it. Just confess this stuff, get stuff right with God, get your wealth and fortunes restored. Because if you become good, then God will be good to you. But Job's saying, I didn't do anything. It's not that I've been perfect, but there's not any great thing that I've done that has deserved all of this. So from his vantage point, there is no meaning at all behind his suffering. And he starts to look at God, and it seems like God is almost like the D.C. sniper who a few years ago, if you remember, was, was hanging out in the Washington, D.C. area, hanging out by expressways and just shooting people as they drove by. And there wasn't any rhyme or reason to it. He didn't just pick someone for a reason. He was just shooting. And so Job says, that's what God's doing to me. He's got his arrows fixed on me. He's been shooting at me. And just one by one, they're plunging into me. But it doesn't make any sense at all. So he's in that place where God doesn't make sense. He couldn't find anything that he did that led to this. And he just can't comprehend what God's up to. In all of that, he doesn't deny his God. But he does have some serious doubts about God's goodness. And so his friends come, and they've all, they're all talking to him. They're trying to offer their explanations, but all of their explanations fall short. Later on, even God says that their explanations fell short, until finally this one friend named Elihu comes. And we won't turn there now, but in chapter 35, Elihu's talking, and he actually says some really good and really true things about God, and how God is mysterious and strong. And while he's talking, he keeps saying, and, and look up at those clouds. Look at those great billows. Look at the lightning. Look at the thunder. Listen to the thunder and hear his voice. He's saying, this God is big and strong, and it's like he's talking to Job in the middle of this storm. And then you can kind of picture it, this last scene where Elihu is just yelling over the noise of the storm, rain coming in, thunder, lightning, clouds billowing. He's trying to proclaim the glory of God, and then a whirlwind starts to come, a tornado. And if you remember, the last wind that came through in this book was the wind that swept across the plain and knocked the house down on Job's children. 
So this wind's coming in, and Job is bracing himself. He's already said that the Almighty has been shooting his arrows at him, and he says, this has got to be the last one. I mean, this is it. The only thing I've got left is my life, so that must be what God's coming to do. He's coming to take that away. So he braces himself as that whirlwind comes in. He stands there in the storm, and all of a sudden, he hears a voice, which wasn't what he expected. You know, all throughout this book, Job has been saying, God, explain yourself to me. Please make this make sense to me. And he probably thought that if God were to answer that prayer, he'd wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, I get it. Now I understand what God's doing. Now I see how he's good in this. Now it makes sense why he's doing this specific thing to my life in this season. He definitely didn't expect a voice. But then in chapter 38, verse 1, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And then it goes on to, to explain what God said to him, and it wasn't at all the answer that Job wanted. Job is saying, God, just explain all this to me. Tell me, why is it that you have done these things that you've done to me? Why has your hand been so heavy upon me? Please, God, come and explain yourself. And God comes and he answers Job, but he doesn't answer to Job. He doesn't answer Job as if Job could really be his judge. He doesn't answer Job as if Job's his equal. He doesn't come and give a really human explanation. He doesn't say, he doesn't even explain what had happened. We saw in the first chapter where the angels come and they present themselves to God and Satan's with them and they have this conversation. God doesn't recount that. He doesn't say, Job, here's what I was doing. I'm, I'm hanging out in heaven and I'm doing the deity thing. And then the angels come in because they got to punch the clock like anybody else. And so, so they come in and Satan's with them. And, and I'm telling you, don't trust that guy. When that guy comes over, I hide the silverware because he's, you can't trust him. I can't trust Satan as far as I could throw him which in my case is not a perfect analogy because I could throw them infinitely far. But they come in, and, um, and we got to talking, and, uh, and here's the deal, Job, your name came up. And I was kind of saying, you know, a person who's got everything could lose everything, and I'd still be enough for him. Satan says, I don't think so. And I said, well, have you considered my servant Job? Have Adam. And so I let Satan go after you, and I'm only letting him go so far. And then at the end of this book, I promise, I'm going to restore all your wealth. You're going to have family again. And then someone's going to come and write this down in a book. Probably Moses. He'll write it all down. And then for 4,000 years, your story is going to be an encouragement to people. So that's what I'm doing. Um, It's been crazy up here. Sorry I didn't check in sooner. But that's my explanation. That's not at all the explanation God gives. He comes, and in his mercy, he answers Job but he doesn't answer Job like Job is his judge. He doesn't answer Job with the answers that he wants, but he brings the answers that he needs. And look at the first thing he says in chapter 38, verse 2. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So the first thing God says is not, let me explain myself. The first thing he says is, who are you? Now, for 36 chapters or so, Job's been pointing this finger up at God, saying, God, explain yourself to me. And God comes and he says, well, well, here's the deal. I'm God, so you, tell me who you are. Why don't you explain yourself to me? He doesn't come in a way where he's tame, in a way where he's safe, in a way where, where he can be manipulated. He comes as God. And this is important for us to see because we like a God that we can control. We like a God who answers all of our questions, who jumps through all of our hoops, who explains himself to us. We like a God who will serve us. We pray to him and he answers our prayers and does some things for us. But that God is not the God of the Bible. I mean, we do have a God who in his mercy has served us. We do have a God who answers many of our questions, but we don't have a God 
who's obligated to. We've got a God who is big and strong and not safe and not tame. And those of you guys who are Chronicles of Narnia fans, that's, that's where I'm taking that language. There was that scene in Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy and the children are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell them that there's this king who reigns named Aslan. And so Lucy says, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. I would do all this in a British accent if I could, but I can't. So he says, do you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so the picture we have in the book of Job is of a God who is very, very good, but isn't safe and tame and predictable. We have a God who doesn't do everything we want him to, who, who won't do what we always expect him to, but we have a God who is, is powerful and good. Uh, chapter 38, verse 4. God comes and the answer he gives Job is, who are you? Look at yourself. Answer me these questions. And the first thing he says is, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? So God comes and rather than defend himself, he puts his credentials on display for Job to see. And he says, Job, I was the one who was there when the world was being created. I did all that. Where were you then? Oh yeah, you weren't there. No, you, you actually were born. I wasn't. You have been around for this second and I've been around for eternity. So what God's doing is saying, I have wisdom that is far superior to your wisdom. So he says, Job, just explain, me, explain to me, how is it that you think you're capable of judging me and judging my ways. I'm the one who's wise enough to speak creation into existence. I'm the one who speaks the ocean into existence and says your waves can go this far, but then no farther. So what he presents to Job is not just a clear, not a clear answer to Job's question, what are you doing? What he presents to Job is this huge view of God compared to a very small view of man. And this is what we need This is what we need to see. This is what actually changes us. For us to realize that the God that we serve is a wild and untamable and indescribable God, not one that we can say will always do exactly what we want him to do. You know, sometimes we like to capture God in our cliches and say, well, you know, God will always do this because he says he will. Whenever God closes a door, he's going to open a window. He's always going to do these things because we know what he does. There's a book called Gospel Wakefulness written by Jared Wilson, and this is a 
paragraph from, from his book. He says, sometimes when God closes a door, he doesn't intend to open a window. Sometimes when God closes a door, it's because he wants us inside when the building collapses. Now, that's a scary picture so far. But we can be confident that our pain is being used for our good. We can be sure that no thorns will pierce our flesh except those that will do so for his glory. So we have this God that we serve that we can't predict what he'll do. We can't always say the way that he'll act toward us. But what we have a guarantee of in the cross of Jesus Christ is that he'll always be good to us. That even when it looks like there's cataclysm coming into our lives, even when it looks like the building is caving in on us, somehow the God who's wiser than us and understands things better than we do is working all that out for our good. Which is not a popular view of God, but it's the view that God presents. The Bible says that he's the one who created everything. He's the one who governs everything. He's got this omniscience, that he's all-knowing. He's got omnisapience, where he's all-wise, and we don't, and we're not. This really will free us, and I'll talk about some practical implications of this in a few seconds, but if you want to skip to um, chapter 38, verse 31. You know, sometimes we like to say to God, God, all of this stuff wouldn't be happening in my life if you were good. And God's answer to us is not always, well, let me explain myself. His answer to us is, I'm way wiser than you are. I'm way bigger, I'm way smarter, I'm way stronger, so trust me. Listen to what he says in 31. He says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? So God's already come on and said, listen, you don't understand because I'm wiser. And now he comes and says, You can't control the world, but I do. He says, I'm a God who created this world, and I am still intimately involved in its operation. There's a big difference between the Christian God and the deist God. The deist God is a God who created everything and wound it all up like a toy and then walked away. He just spun it off and said, there, I gave it all of its initial energy. It's just going to do what it's going to do and maybe someday come back. But right now, I'm not really involved in the affairs of these people because they're so far below me. God says he did create everything, but he's intimately involved in controlling everything. And you see him describing how he sustains the ecosystem and how when a raven needs something to eat, God is involved in making sure there's something to eat for that bird. When a lion needs something to eat, God's involved in hunting its prey. He says, I'm still involved. I'm still controlling things. And this is something we need to hear because we're pretty often deluded into thinking that we're good at controlling things or that we're necessary. When I was in uh, junior high, those were the years that the Bills went to the Super Bowls, and my dad got season tickets, so we would go to all the games, but if they were away and I was watching a game at home, I had to stay focused because I actually had a significant impact on the outcome of that game. 
And, and I don't know how it worked, but I would go in my room and watch the TV just by myself. I would lock the door so my brothers wouldn't be around me because I had to stay totally focused. I had to coach sometimes and through the TV, tell Marv Levy and Jim Kelly what they should be doing. And, um, and, and so I put a lot of effort into controlling and sustaining the Buffalo Bills during those winning years. And uh, I got them to four Super Bowls. And then it turned out in those games that I really didn't have as much influence as I thought. Um, that, that my control really didn't mean that much. My coaching really wasn't all that helpful. Um, I told them to run some different plays. They should have listened to me, but they didn't. And I think sometimes we can be just as deluded into thinking that we're really important in this world. Like that this world will just not keep spinning without me. My workplace, they just, if I'm not there, it falls apart. This church that I pastor, it can't exist without me. It needs my controlling hand in there. It needs me in everything. My family, if I'm not controlling and manipulating every situation, it's just going to go bad. I'm completely necessary, and we say that because we believe that we're God. But God comes and says, you think you can control things, but you can't. I do control things. I feed the ravens, I feed the lions, I tell the waves where to stop, and I say, don't go any farther than this. Our control is pretty insignificant compared to his. So when Job comes and says, God, explain yourself, he says, I'm wiser than you are. I control things better than you do. He says, I'm the one being in the universe who doesn't need anything else. You need energy from outside yourself. You need people outside yourself to help you. You can't live without God sustaining you. And he says, I'm the sustainer. I'm the one who's truly independent, who's truly self-sufficient. You might think you are, but it's all an illusion. So he comes in and shocks him. And God comes and speaks to him in his mercy like he does to us but he doesn't answer to him and feed Job's illusion or any of our illusion that we're God. So skip to chapter 40, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. So God's words are starting to sink into Job. In verse 6, it says, The Lord answered Job out of, the, out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Now, overall, when God assessed Job's words throughout this book, at the end of the book, God says Job didn't sin in the same way that his friends did. But we do see Job repenting. So we see an imperfect, though in general, good response to God and his hand in Job's life. And one of the things that God does criticize is that Job is looking at God and saying, God, you better justify yourself. You better explain yourself because it's making me look like a bad guy here. Job wants to look like he's right. And the way that he's doing that is almost, at least on the border, of accusing God of being wrong. Somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong here. And Job's looking at his life going, man, I'm, I'm right. I didn't do anything wrong, so God must be doing something wrong here. And God comes and says, Job, you are right, but so am I, and you just don't understand how these pieces fit. So God says, be careful about answering me in a way that would put me in the wrong when, in fact, you're the one who's, who's in the wrong. We have to be careful of putting the burden of proof for God's goodness on God. Let's skip to chapter 41. God keeps questioning Job, 
and it, I'm sure really uncomfortable at this point. I mean, this is standing before Aslan with your knees knocking, unless you're just totally silly. He, he's feeling this. God's got his finger pointed at Job, and I mean, Job has felt the arrows hitting him, but now he's hearing the voice of God. And so this has to be just overwhelming emotionally, and God turns his thoughts now toward Leviathan. And we don't really know what Leviathan was, not for sure. We know that it was some kind of great sea creature and was probably really mysterious, and probably most people didn't really understand what it was anyway. Back in their day, before Discovery Channel, before underwater photography, you looked at the sea, you looked at the ocean, and it was just this mysterious, chaotic, fearful thing. If you went out on a boat and a storm came up, you were dead. There was no hope for you. There was no mayday, mayday. You just held on, and maybe if your log that you were holding on to ended up on an island, you could survive somewhere. But your life was always at stake when you were out on the sea. And then you would see these sea creatures. And just imagine what would go through your heart when you see a humpback whale surfacing. And you just see that hump in the fin, if they have a fin. And you're just terrified. You're just saying, I don't even know what the rest of that thing looks like. The whole sea is chaotic. And I know that in that sea, there are monsters. They're humongous. The sea by itself is fearful. But man, I couldn't even imagine being swimming and seeing that hump. What, what else is under there? And there are all kinds of ancient drawings where people try to guess what's under there, and it's just funny what they thought a whale must look like. They just knew massive, awesome, fearful, terrifying forces were under there. And here's what God says about those terrifying forces. Chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Try it. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle and you won't do it again. So he says, Job, you've got this crazy, ferocious creature out there that you can't understand, you can't comprehend, and he is my puppy. He does what I tell him to do. I lead him around on a string. And so God's already said, you think you're wise, but look how much wiser I am. You think you're in control, but look how much better my control is. And now he's saying, you think you're strong, but Leviathan is my pet. Skip to verse 20. He says, out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, It does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake, one would think the deep to be white-haired. 
On the earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over the sons of pride. So Job comes to God and says, God, explain yourself. And God says, I made the universe, I control it, and Leviathan's my pet. He doesn't explain all of his ways. He just says, I'm stronger, I'm smarter, and I'm better. And I love how he answers because we want God to jump through our hoops and give us answers, but he looks at us and says, that's not what you need because if you get an answer, you trust in the answer and you don't trust in me. So God comes and answers with words that would make us stand in awe of him, sometimes make our knees shake, make us fear. But then the answer of the book of Job is not only is he powerful, but also he's good. So Job gets it. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Remember the first thing God said to Job out of the whirlwind? He came and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he goes and just goes on this long explanation of his power, his might, his control, his rule over all of creation. And Job says, God, I agree. Who is this? Who is this who has spoken all of these words without knowledge? Who? So Job's getting what God's doing here. He's saying, God, I think I get what you're saying. You're really big, and I'm really small. Your brain, my brain. Your control, my control. Your goodness, my goodness. I am nothing compared to you. And that's the big thing that God is trying to drive home to Job and trying to drive home to us, that he's bigger, he's stronger, he's smarter, and we can trust him. And no, he's not a safe lion, but he is a good one. Verse 4, Job says, and we don't totally catch in the English how he says it, but he says, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. So Job comes and and he's not saying, I will question you like your judge here. He's saying, God, I'm starting to understand that I don't understand things. I get that I don't get it, so would you teach me? I'm coming to you as your questioner, not as a judge, but as a beggar. Like, God, would you please tell me what I need to know here? I don't even know what I need to know. I've been trying to figure all this out on my own, and I'm giving up figuring it out on my own. I obviously can't because your ways are higher than my ways. So God, if you want to, just explain it to me because I can't do this on my own. His answer is, God, you're big and I'm small. And when he says, you make it known to me, he's really saying, God, I'm ignorant. I'm dumb. I'm pea-brained. So please help me. Help me in this weakness to understand you. So now instead of complaining about God and justifying himself, Job's just saying, God's good, God's big, God's better. So God, please tell me what I need to know. Verse five, and we'll come back to this verse next week, but he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So his relationship with God has changed in his suffering, and that's one of the purposes of it, and we'll talk about that next week. But verse six, he says, therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Literally, he's saying here, I am at home in the dust and the ashes. God, you made me out of dust. I'm going to be dust again someday. I'm nothing. So I'm at home right here, mourning and broken in these ashes. I recognize that I'm nothing. 
So what do we do with this? And this isn't a popular message. For the most part, when you go to a lot of churches, you will hear, God wants you to do more good things and try harder, so here's some motivational thoughts to help you do those things. When we read through the Bible, although there is law like that in there that's very important, the big purpose of the Bible is to tell us who God is. Because the the premise of the Bible is that that's what changes us. That the more we see this picture of God that Job saw, the more we see the picture of God that the Bible paints, the more all of those things that we try to do that we can't do end up actually getting done. I mean, for example, you take our worry, and we could give you, here are five steps to go home and not worry. Just don't think about it. Uh, Just think happy thoughts. Um, Exercise more. Like, do all those things. But we know that those things don't work. What if on a deep level, we really believed that God was saying to us, I'm God, so you don't have to worry. I'm running this thing just fine. I got things under control. It was running great before you got here. It's going to keep running great afterwards. I'm God. I built the universe. I sustained the universe. I designed the universe. I've got the wisdom. I've got the power. I've got the strength. So stop worrying. If we have that picture of God, that breaks up our worry. If we get angry and bitter, God says to all of that, not here are three steps to not be angry. He says, I'm God. I'm God and I've got this thing under control. You've got this enemy who did something that was so terrible to you and you feel like you need to make them pay. You feel like you need to dwell on that all the time. You need to spend your life mourning because this terrible thing happened to you. He said, but Leviathan is my pet. I can take the most chaotic, the most obnoxious, the most powerful forces in your life and use them for your good and my glory. So instead of being bitter against your enemy, why don't you just say, God makes this thing his servant. He's leading this thing around on a fish hook. It's his, he's going to get his glory. I'm going to get good out of this. He's doing something good with this, and then we don't have to be as bitter. Not because we're following the techniques to less bitterness, but because we believe in God who says, I'm God. I got this under, under control. I'm doing something. You know, we live our lives with regrets over missed opportunities. Here was this relationship I should have gotten into. Here's this relationship I shouldn't have gotten into. Here's this college I should have gone to. Here's the business decision I should have made. And if I just made a different decision, my life would have forked in a different direction. Things would have been better. So we live our lives with regret because we don't have what we wanted to have. We made all these bad decisions. And God says, I'm God. Even the chaos of your bad decisions... I'm working out for your good and for my glory. I got this thing under control. And if we get proud and we start to get really impressed with ourselves, God says to us, I'm God. You're not that impressive. You know, I I know you made that three-pointer on the varsity team that one time, and and that was sweet, but um, I'm the one who kept your lungs breathing, your heart beating, and I also made the universe with my words. The three-pointer is not that impressive. Our righteousness is not that impressive before him. Our goodness, everything on our resume, he looks at it and laughs and says, Leviathan's my pet. I've got him on a fish hook. I'm, I'm leading him around. It's, it's under control. And you know, if we believe this, it changes us. We, the way our lives change is not as we go and try harder. The way our lives change is as we believe more in this God. The more the picture of this God goes deep into our hearts as we look at him, as we behold him, as we see him for who he is, it transforms us. And sometimes in doing that, our knees knock, sometimes it's uncomfortable, and we have to feel like we are not in control anymore, and we just have to trust. There was a movie 
I don't know, was it the 80s or early 90s, The Abyss? Anyone remember that? And it's one where these guys are going deep sea diving, like really deep. And I guess you go down, at least the movie says this, to a certain height or a certain distance underneath the water, and you couldn't just breathe air. So they had to train these people to breathe oxygenated water. And I don't know if this stuff exists. It was cool. But the, they put this mask on the people, and they have to inhale this liquid that they can actually breathe. But those first few minutes, they're taking those breaths, and they're freaking out because they know people shouldn't breathe liquid. You shouldn't do this. And they almost have to just let go and just trust, someone told me that this is going to work and I'm going to be able to breathe this so that they could go on and be normal while they're breathing this liquid. For us to respond to God who's sovereign does conflict with our nature a little bit. We've got this sin nature. We've got this independent streak in us. We want to be sovereign. We want to rule. We want to know everything. We want to be in control of everything. But God calls us to just trust calls us to know that he's got everything under control and that even the terrible things are his servants. He calls us to know that not only is he good, but also he's all-powerful so he can make that good happen. And all the evidence for that is at the cross. We look at the cross of Jesus and here's this terrible thing. Here's Leviathan. The Son of God is being nailed to a cross. But God says, it's my servant. It's so that our sins could be forgiven, so God can get his glory, so God can be just and also let sin go, so it can be just and a justifier of the ungodly. He does all of that on the cross. We never would have seen it coming. I mean, even the followers of Jesus who spent three years with him, as soon as he's crucified, they're walking away going, I quit. This is ridiculous. I was wrong. That can't be the Savior. And God says, no, that's how I save. And he comes in a totally unsafe and unpredictable way. He makes this assault on our real enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He dies for our sins. He's buried and he rises again and he says, trust me and you have life. That's a God that we're not in control of, but a God that is so good to us that while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. The God with all of that power became one of us. I mean, us, the ones who say, who am I? He steps into our world, becomes one of us, and dies for us, showing us that not only is he all-powerful, but also he's good, and that is great news. Uh, Let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for a minute, please. The message of the Bible is not that here here are ten things you can know about God, and, and he'll always respond just the way you want to in every situation if you do certain things. The message of the Bible is not that we can make God our pet, but it's that God can make Leviathan his pet. That God is in control of all things. You know, all of us are sinful. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. It says we've all, fallen, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, that all-powerful God has wrath and anger stored up for us. Which is bad news. If there's anyone we don't want against us, it's the most powerful being in the universe who can make even Leviathan his puppy. But the good news is that that God loves us. That that God who who does know that there's justice and there's a price to be paid, he comes, Jesus Christ, he lives the perfect life that none of us could have lived. He dies on the cross. He's buried and he rises again so that the Bible says whoever trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's not only all-powerful, but he's also good. And he he made this way for us to be right with him. He was the way for us to be right with him again. 
So if you're here and you recognize that sinfulness, you recognize that I've broken God's law, he said don't lie, and I lied, don't steal, and I stole, and you recognize that there's this huge gap between you and the eternal God, then trust Jesus. Trust that he's also good, that he also loves you, and that he died for you, he was buried, and he rose again. That the way that that gap gets bridged is not with you becoming more religious. It's not with you joining this church or some other church. It's not by you doing good things. It's by you trusting the only way, our Savior Jesus. Trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. Confess your sin to him, and then just cry out to him for forgiveness. And Jesus said, of those who come to me, I won't lose one. So in whatever words you want, just in the quietness of your heart, you can say, God, I know how sinful I am. I know that I've been against you. I know that I'm apart from you. But Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you died for me, you were buried, and you rose again, so I confess my sin to you, my unworthiness to you, but I also confess my belief in your death for me. And if that's not just words that you say in some religious way, but that's the cry of your heart, turning to God and trusting your Savior, he promises you redemption, he promises you forgiveness, And he promises you that in all of his might, in all of his power, he puts his arm around you like you're his dear child. That's a great message. That's a great God. That's a good God. And that's the one that we gather to worship. If today you've put your trust in Christ or in any other time, I would encourage you to announce that to the world around you by being baptized. On December 11th, we'll be doing baptisms here. And those are just a way of publicly professing your faith in Jesus, saying that God has washed my sin away, he's cleansed me, he's made me new as I've trusted in him. So if if you want to do that, I'd encourage you, just let us know and we'll we'll get you baptized to proclaim that to the world. And Christians, let's, let's really worship. Let's worship God who is always good, but is never safe and tame, who's indescribable and uncontrollable, but also was humble. Let's lift that Jesus up. Let's lift him high and let's let him be the greatest force in our lives. And as he is, that changes the sin. It changes the worry, the anger, the and everything else we struggle with as we see God as bigger and greater. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you revealed this picture to us that we never would have guessed. It doesn't always make sense to us and it doesn't always even seem good to us, but we know that you are good. So we're here, Lord, not as your judge, but as your worshipers. We're here to lift you up and say that you are great and we are not. You're wise and we're not. You're strong and we're not. You're good and we're not. So we're here to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that that would so change our hearts, that worship for you, that we would go out into our world and be about your business this week, uh, bringing this great news that a mighty God became man. Uh, Lord, we're here to praise you today, and I pray this in Jesus' name.